really delighted, the filmmaker, Rob Orlando, who's able not just to join me on the podcast, we've talked about this quite a bit, but actually to visit me at Butler University and to uh, speak to my students and interact with some of my colleagues there. And so while he's here, although even though we didn't manage to do it in the same location, we still wanted to seize the opportunity, strike while the metal is hot, and talk about the subject. And the subject is not what you might assume it would be, right? We've talked a lot. I've mentioned uh, blogging about, once again, uh, his wonderful movie about Paul the Apostle. Uh, not going to be his only movie about Paul the Apostle, apparently. Uh, but Paul the Apostle, A Polite Bribe, was how Rob and I first connected. But his most recent project is The Divine Plan. And it's a movie, but it's also a book that he's co-authored with Paul Kengor, uh, who also appears in the film, along with a lot of other important people. And it's about the Cold War and the collaboration of Pope John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, to bring that about. And so, Rob, you keep doing projects related to stuff that I find fascinating. Uh, sometimes they're things that are up my alley, and sometimes they're not in the same way, but they interest me, fascinate me in so many you know, wonderful ways. So thank you for taking time to chat about some of this with me. No, I'm excited. I, I really, I like the way we engage over this kind of interdisciplinary, you know, uh, different subject matters. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, the movie was great. You know, had the chance to see it for the first time last night. It's going to be out in theaters November 6th. I want to make sure I mention that. Uh, we'll try to mention it multiple times over the course of the episode, obviously. Uh, in case you didn't get the hint and you're listening to this, watching this, go see the movie on November 6th or whatever other opportunity you have. Um, order it once it's available for purchase, you know, all those kinds of things. But, you know, we had a chance to talk about the movie. You know, it's fascinating to see how the notion of something being in a divine plan has an impact on political leaders, religious leaders, right? Uh, obviously, one concern that someone might have, depending on their theological views, is, you know, are you going to hit them over the head with the idea that this is, you know, it was God's plan to end communism, to do this, to do that. And it's much more subtle, it's much more exploratory in nature. But one of the things we didn't get to talk about yesterday that I really hope we'll get to is the whole notion that there's actually something worth comparing between you know, Pope John Paul II and Jesus and Ronald Reagan and Paul across these differences in time. And so maybe we should start with the question, why does somebody who makes movies make a, make a movie about Paul the Apostle, make a movie about Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan, with plans to return to Paul the Apostle and to do other things. How do these things intersect in your own life and interests? I mean, how do they connect? I think that what, the common ground would be that they're all change agents mm. and make uh, incredible impact on their time, the times they live in, and then the world after it is never quite the same. I think some of the characteristics of them are also they have some kind of vision, uh, a moral clarity, they're certainly not afraid to not be accepted. Uh, they suffer a lot, um, but they're enigmatic characters. They're almost self-contradictory in certain ways. You can't completely put them in conventional terms. Mm. Although some of our left-right categories today try and do things like that or have done that in the past with Reagan, but they're just very complex figures and they interest me. It's like a um, bit of a Rubik's cube, I guess. You're trying to always solve and in trying to solve it, there's a journey and a mystery and a beginning, middle, and end to doing so. Yeah, I'm very tempted to ask whether, you know, there are actually more than, what would it be, nine different colors on there. And so it's like, actually, you know, if you look at it closely, you might want to conclude that people are not solvable as a puzzle in a right. sense like that. 
But it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that people have a tendency to pigeonhole someone like Ronald Reagan, you know, in terms of left and right pol politics, things like that. They do the same with Jesus and with Paul. So mm -hmm. it's, that's a point of similarity, if anything. Well, I say a Rubik's Cube because once you start to, if you are starting from an ideology first or a theology or philosophy or a political philosophy first, and you're saying, I'm a person who's yellow, and you try and move the Rubik's Cube so that all the yellows are in one place, you throw the other colors off. So you, mm -hmm. at a certain point where you have to accept you can't quite make one whole side yellow or green. You have to understand that certain people are the Rubik's Cube because they are complex and, and you can't move them around to find the exact color you want. They don't fit in your picture. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's actually a wonderful analogy. Um, uh, thank you for sharing it with me. I hope I, I, I hope I always remember to credit you. Free of charge. charge. <laughs> okay, but it actually is a really good one, right? When we focus on somebody like, you know, Jesus, let's say, as just an ethical teacher or just a messianic claimant, royal figure, uh, exorcist, whatever, you know, some facet of them, you know, Paul as missionary, as apostle, as, you know, Christian, as Jew, as whatever. Oftentimes, as you focus your attention on solving that side, that facet of the individual, everything else starts to get into disarray increasingly, right? right? Unless right. you're solving, it's like, they're both and, right? They're these things simultaneously. And Although I've uh, struggled, yeah, I don't think I've ever solved a, a Rubik's Cube in its entirely with, in, entirety without looking up. Like, mm -hmm. how do you get this last face to come together or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that's true of research too. Sometimes we need help to <laughs> check on the instructions before we try to finish the puzzle. But if you have to focus on all of them simultaneously, and if you just focus on one, it's actually to the detriment of making sense of the other facts. Well, th this is the reason why ultimately I chose to be a filmmaker first, because I think as a creative, you actually don't have to answer the question of the Rubik's Cube. The, if you are affiliated with a political philosophy or a theology of being this and not that, and it's not a process or integrated thinking, I'm saying you are forced to make choices and not make others, and it's more dichotomous. But if you're, think of it like, taking a journey versus winning an argument, right? You don't, you don't need to completely agree with someone to take a journey with them and enjoy the experience of the journey. But if you want to win a debate, you have to get them to agree with you. So again, it go, it, to me, it's, it's going from the binary to the integrated life because do I really need to agree with the Apostle Paul to find him fascinating? Do I need to agree with Ronald Reagan? As a matter of fact, I would argue that if I'm an empathetic human being and I'm curious and have certain skill sets and research, I might not agree at all with someone and find them in incredibly fascinating, even in the way they contradict what I believe. But so this journey, the binary, I think, the problem is the binary. I just want to put that on the table. Yeah. We're living in a world that's binary and it's in part because of our politics, I think, and there's a lot of antecedents, which we didn't get into with your class, but I think uh, there are roots in postmodernism and Marxism and even in um, let's call it unbridled capitalism and a lot of the myths that inform our conversations, but we live in a binary world and the binary is bad. So as a filmmaker, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly there are a lot of films that use the binary, you know, for the purpose of getting an audience and, you know, pandering to a particular audience and getting viewers. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen this with Jesus movies. We've seen it with things about politics. We've seen it about all kinds of things. Does filmmaking encourage one to pursue a 
a binary either as a, a as a medium or be for promotional purposes and finding an audience and how if that's true and of course you know tell me if it's not because you're mm -hmm. the expert on that but how does one avoid that tendency and resist it well, as Fran a filmmaker? Francis Ford Coppola once said that the problem with film is that it became commerce before it could become an art form mm -hmm. and you're you know Europeans are older traditions in movie making who come from a different orientation would make the argument that ultimately art is about breaking new ground and finding common interests. But if commerce drives it at the level it does and the mighty dollar drives it, then what you want to do to play the money safe is to reaffirm an audience so that you could identify it in advance. So the, the very tensions we're talking about even exist into the approach of a filmmaker because, you know, m the world exists. Most people just want to be, again, uh, reassured of what they already think, not be challenged to a new vision in the world. However, the irony of that is only the visionaries and those independent type thinking creatives, both from a point of film and otherwise, even in military history, politically, are the ones who carry the ball forward. So it's the irony is the world will resist them. And maybe this ties together your first question with me and everything else. The change agent is usually not beloved in their time. They usually reject it because of the very reasons I'm saying. It's that it's not human nature to say, hey, take us to a new place and make me think with beyond my comfort zone. They're usually taken there kicking and screaming. And I think Paul, Jesus, even George Washington, people forget this. I'll give you one other analogy so I don't go on too much, but which is another project I have been working on for a long time, but not from the usual fanfare or patriotism only type. George Washington, but more from the journey of providence and spirituality. But if you think about it, we have this myth of you know, a bunch of um, older men sitting around, wise, trained men sitting in a circle and agreeing about lofty things. But for a period of time in American history, specifically from the retreat of New York, all the way back to the crossing of the Delaware and then the winning against the Hessians, um, Washington's carrying most of that alone. He's been betrayed. He's, he believes he's standing for God's providence. Um, he has no support. He's gone from a 25,000-member army to 2,000 men, most without shoes. And, and he's basically keeping the union together. The, he, his government has abandoned him for support. So this is a perfect example. But after the victories of Trenton and Princeton and Cornwallis comes back to fight and he wins up his first stand of battle, then everyone returns and then everyone wants to be on board. And so there's these times in history, um, as you know, with Paul, to go back to a polite bribe, no one is on Paul's side when he's bringing that collection to Jerusalem. No one's, he has no team players because they let him go, except for his nephew, as you know. So, so maybe that, that in full in full circle there was what I, what really I'm passionate about. And it's not really the medium, it's the story and unpacking how that, how that dynamic works. Yeah. I'm not even sure how on board the nephew was. I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I'd like my uncle not to be killed, please. You know, That's I mean, true. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some people who felt that way about Washington, but we're not like risking their lives and, uh, you know, or giving them money or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So is it your, your aim to, uh, drag people kicking and screaming and uh, while they hate you for it, but be appreciated I, by future generations or? Uh... Well, who is, is, doesn't Jesus say a prophet is not, not that I'm claiming this, but a prophet is not welcome in their own town. And I, yeah. I think because familiarity breeds contempt. It's just yeah. the nature of people that there's a self-loathing to people. And because we know how imperfect we are. So that when something's too much like you and you're around it too much, you can't, 
see it as something that's going to change you or challenge you because you're like, what are you saying? You're, you're just like me. And I kind of see Jesus and Paul. In the case of Paul, it's even worse. He was their enemy. So he was saying, you know, how do we take this guy serious? He was like a zealot. He was a nut and he was killing our own people. I mean, so, so it, it, that does matter as to how do you legitimize your, your platform to be an agent of change. I look at Martin Luther King. I mean, you know, they killed him. I mean, so yeah. you keep going back to this form of Gandhi, you know, uh, anyone who stands alone at a time um, and is that singular voice that represents a new thing, they usually are killed. Or at least they try. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask a, a question. I didn't foresee myself making these connections until, you know, seeing your movie and some of the th points it made and then talking about Jesus and Paul in the same, you know, same conversation. Mm -hmm. So one of the points you make in the film that I think is really fascinating is how the background in theater, you know, cinema, in you know, acting may have been crucial in these people being able to not just have a sense that they are, you know, the right people for the right moment, but to use words effectively to get others on board, to, to convey their message, things like that. So I was really struck at some point discovering, you know, looking into the life of Paul the Apostle that one of the possible meanings or connotations of you know, tent maker, you know, the term that's used for that, actually is somebody who works on like theatrical sets. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was like, what? You know, is that, is that, did Paul ever do that? Did he work in that? Was he, you know, uh, was there, you know, he says at one point to the Galatians, you know, Christ was clearly portrayed, like depicted as on a set as mm -hmm. crucible. I was like, ooh, you know, Paul is not just tent maker, but like, involved in musical theater or something to spread the gospel. I would love somebody to do that. But yeah. there's also been debates about whether Jesus had opportunity to go to Sepphoris, right? The nearby city, walking distance, where there's, there's a theater, right? And to be exposed to theater, even if indirectly, even if just sneaking a peek through, you know, uh, not paying an entrance fee. Not that I'm encouraging that. Sure. I know some people would say, what would Jesus do if he snuck into the theater? So should I, right? No, not, not where I'm going with this. But is it possible those ancient figures had some sense of the theatrical, of the, the performative that they were bringing to their, their religious, political, and other goals? Yeah, no, you, uh, let me unpack that a little bit because I keep going back to the antecedents that allow, uh, have come to be our modern day perception. Yeah. Jesus is an example of the, of the dramatic act of coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. Mm -hmm. And think about that setup with the olive branches He's literally, that's a performance to make a large statement that the Caesar that you thought was the real, the false son of God doesn't come, Caesar would come in on a stallion and he'd be led by a great pageantry. And he's saying that you want to see the real son of God and he's coming in this humility. He's coming on a donkey, a mule, and, um, and you'll see there is a power you have not before because it's not of this world. It's, it's of the kingdom of God and that kingdom's coming to us you know and this is the first steps the first fruits like that's all an act and and I, that's point number one and so their acts themselves are not false performances they're the embodiment of spirit or thought or mm. uh, conviction you have to act them out right um a second point is we still suffer again from the puritan streak in american culture again that goes back to calvin and at least the reformation if not earlier I think it's platonic in nature, but let's just let's try, start at the Reformation, and that's the idea that there's a dichotomy between body and soul, and the the uh, the uh, the sacred world and the uh, 
profane world or whatever. But if you go back to Greek, the Greek, uh, uh, the ceremony, the ritual they would do year annually, and you look at, I believe the word is the Seder, it was called, but they would write four plays, and one of them would be a religious play in nature. And the idea of the Greek ideal was that all of these things belong to all of us. The public square is both theater, religion, politic, uh, humanity, sport. It, it's the ideal is that they're not bifurcated, that the body and the soul are one. So it's interesting because religion itself in the Western tradition begins in part as a theatrical experience. So as, and even Caesar would perform, I don't know if you know how crazy Nero was, but Nero would put himself in star roles, even though he wasn't a great actor. But the whole idea of participating in the community ritual in religion as a theater performance has been around since the beginning of time. Third, third point would be, and I highly recommend uh, John Paul II's philosophy and the first book called The Acting Person, which is literally a play on words. But ultimately, he's making the point as a phenomenologist that phenomena, phenomena is not alone doesn't do it or thought like a, tom, a Thomist he's kind of reacting to, Thomistic thinking where it's not a top down, something floats down as a body of knowledge, but your life is lived through in existential choices and free will. And you're both learning and disclosing yourself. All of this makes acting, meaning the performance of your internal life, almost necessary to be a human being. But I think in our world, again, we separate thought from being, oh, that's profane, that's on a stage. So when you hear Ronald Reagan spent so much of his life um, doing 80 films and practicing how to hit his marks and memorize his lines, and John Paul II was a leading theatrical figure, there's a certain level of worldview that comes with that beyond the entertainment uh, uh, piece of it. Yeah. And it's a mouthful. This, yeah. yeah. And there's this interesting, you know, the, the roots that, you know, the, you're highlighting some of the, the Greek context, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and Roman context. But of course, if, if we look at the prophets of ancient Israel, you know, to whom, you know, Jesus and Paul are, you know, you know uh, inherit some of uh, that tradition and are actually emulating it, you know, deliberately in some cases. But there's, you know, there's street theater there, right? I mean, some really bizarre street theater, especially if you get into Ezekiel, but some of them, you know, I mean, costumes and props and doing things with, and, you know, the theatrical is an element of that. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, the fact that these were essentially poets, you know, in a lot of instances, you know, you, you hold up a Bible and you see that actually it's in, you know, Hebrew, Hebraic Hebrew style verse and things like oh. that. And a lot of think people about, think about the roots of Catholicism, but the idea yeah. of liturgical that you, mm. in part, you're not sitting later after the Gutenberg and the Reformation. We think of the act of being spiritual as being literary, but it's actually mm -hmm. it's the physical acting out of a liturgy that combines the literary with the bodily act. One thing one thing you got at before, and it's in the Divine Plan book a little bit. We didn't go as deep as I was hoped, but we could in that size book. But actually the word mimesis is the connecting Greek word that crosses over between Paul and be act like me as I act like Jesus is mm. Paul's um, command to us. So he's, his offering is not, you know, Jesus doesn't say believe. He says, come right to his apostles, come with me and start acting like with me on the road and see what it means to perform as a Christian in Christ, you know, and Paul saying, just like he acted, to the point of crucifixion, act with me. I even have the stigmata. Remember, he says, I even have the stigmata. As a, as, so he's becoming like Christ, putting on the clothes of being in Christ as the wardrobe, 
is literally in Philippians. I mean, so this is inseparable. Do you think Paul would have, if he was speaking to people who knew theatrical language, would have said, you know, instead of, you know, following the example, using these other phrases that we, you know, would you talk about being in character? Yeah, as Christ or something like that. I mean, is that a... I think, well, to be, think about it, to be in Christ, and you're going to like this one a lot. If you think about the nature of what, what is Paul's crisis, to use, a, to use a word of drama, his crisis is that he keeps experiencing a world in the binary, right? We are not brothers. We're not Greeks or Jews anymore. We're not master slave. We're one in Christ. Put on the clothes of Christ. Like, change the way you're performing and thinking be renewed you can almost say be renewed by reading your lines over and over yeah. again right yeah. like read over your lines so that you could take on christ put on this new wardrobe of redemption and step on a new stage and that new stage is the world becoming like the kingdom of god it's all there it's like this is an inseparable conversation from the bible and, and history because one must act to communicate with the physical world yeah, so one thing that all these figures that we've been talking about, you know, Pope John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, Jesus, Paul, have is this performative element. And one thing that I know came up in our conversation last night is the fact that there's, there's, so, there's so many examples around them, and there's so many examples around us today of figures who, whether it's politically, religiously, or all of the above, you know, are, are tearing things down, are criticizing, poking holes in things, but not really offering something to replace it, something positive. Right. Does it take a, a theatrical sense in order to offer that? Is that what's missing from some of these visions? Is that sense well, of takes, the dramatic, think, the theatrical? Okay. Yeah, if you're looking at it through like a narrative uh, or let's say a dramatic critical lens of like what causes this, unfortunately, it's usually a crisis. So mm. in, in human history, that usually is war. Usually war resets and then it forces performance because the luxury class forgot they have to perform and they assume what... Had, what has been should always be. So they, don't, they used to play the analogy to death. You know, they never step on their own stage. They kind of keep a healthy distance from everything. They shoot it down to seem important. Um, mm -hmm. It's almost like they become passive, not actors. They become passive, right? And so they're not in the active of their own lives. They're in the passive tense. And in doing that, we're seeing that with every luxury class. They, the leisure class, you know, lives on the shoulders of the former um, generations that had suffered for them. And I think that's unfortunately what we see. I mean, Jesus, Jesus was coming to reform the relationship between the Sanhedrin and the Romans. He was coming to clean up a crisis. And the cross is the ultimate crisis, right? It triggers all of Western civilization based in Greek categories of drama and all these things, but it does, one event triggers all of Western civilization. A place to go from there, I know we're uh, getting short on time, but one that I think you might like is, I mean, it sounds like you're basically saying that the difference between negative religion and positive, negative politics and positive, is really the difference between, you know, the, the composer, performer, and the critic. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. That at some point, the editing mind has a luxury to just um, sit in the, in the mental state of looking for perfection before it does anything. And when it does, it aspires to it, but on the backs of the others who are doing all the work and all the suffering and all the, um, yeah. So it, it is why critics, I think this kind of a weak that you, you appreciate the a connoisseur. Someone knows what a great right. cuisine is. Or, there is that part of it, like a, a great scholar, right? You want to know someone who knows all the works, 
but if the which is the editing mind but the editing mind outside the mind that creates is really just a negative impulse it's not and ultimately if it drags down those who have to have to take the steps and they become you know stultified because they can't act at all because someone's always reminding them of everything they do wrong then the culture is stuck and i think we're kind of there now so we do need we need big actors and not actors for to continue reminding us of the cynicism but maybe like John Paul II, as, as imperfect as Ronald Reagan was, uh, maybe people with moral clarity, like we don't want to live in a world where we know that tens of millions of people live every day under gunpoint and oppression. Like that's worth speaking out against. So I know we're getting towards the end of our time. I know you've, you've got other things to do. Uh, want to make sure I mention again, you know, that you're out promoting this movie, which will be in theaters November 6th. www.thedivineplanmovie.com www.thedivineplanmovie.com. And how does it feel that, I mean, I'm pretty sure that people now by this point can Google the divine plan and what they get is not, you know, guidance from the Bible or from a Pope or from anyone else, but they get your movie, you know, um, I'm not sure how that feels to you, but uh, there's something really interesting there. Um, tell us something about the internet and how <laughs> keyword searches work, but mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember, I remember uh, years ago, I think I was at, I forgot what school, I think it was Wisconsin, I think. And I was interacting with one of the scholars and her observation was that, isn't it interesting that Paul, because of the technology uh, revolution of the roads in Rome and the moving out of the merchant class, hit the road basically, <laughs> the road show begins, Paul becomes an effective communicator that winds up, I believe, transforming and extending what was the Jerusalem form of Christianity to the rest of the Western world. And then Luther, and even you could, oh, you could, you could argue Augustine or Augustine, uh, you could argue that there's some impact there because he's converted by Romans, which is the words of Paul. Then you have Luther, who has the Gutenberg, the new, which is a medium change to the printing press, and he's converted by Paul and impacted by Paul. And then, so she was saying to me, how interesting that a digital communicator of our time would also have been so impacted by Paul mm. and now has the internet as like our form of the Roman roads. It's a high-minded statement, don't get me wrong, but, but I thought the analogy was like, it makes total sense that someone would want to transform this new opportunity and who comes to the fore again? It's always Paul and, and, and the reminder, you know, to be in Christ, to, step out of the binary, uh, you know, to be one with Christ. It's just, a, I don't know, I just think it's time has come. I think it's time to think in positive faith terms about how we move forward. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to having, you know, multiple ongoing conversations through lots of different media of mm -hmm. communication about Paul and his relevance to our time, because, I mean, there's so much there to talk mm -hmm. about. Uh, we could have a whole other podcast episode, whole other conversation, and other movies and things just exploring this but for now since i know you you need to go uh let me just yeah, have one more time like, maybe we could say on, on on the air here but maybe we could do a forum sometime in the future at butler Sounds that could good. be interactive and, and kind of combine a lot of these different themes we're talking about now that would be wonderful that would be wonderful but i didn't mean to interrupt you while you're about to sell my book so go ahead <laughs> well that's quite all right i mean your book you know, is going to get the attention it deserves, I'm pretty sure. But anyone who's interested in the Cold War, interested in the intersectional religion and politics, interested in Catholicism, uh, Republicanism, uh, American history, Soviet history, Russian history, uh, Vladimir Putin, we've got to give him a mention because you know he's part of this picture as well, uh, should, should be uh, taking a look at the book. But you know, 
don't need to choose between the book and the movie in this case, right? They nicely complement each other. And so sure. it's, it's not a case of, you know, read the book, don't wait for the movie or that kind of thing, but do both because each speaks in its own way and gives part of this picture that, you know, like a Rubik's cube is, you know, multifaceted and deserves to be viewed from multiple angles, um, but all with the help of a filmmaker's insight, which uh, we're very grateful to you, Rob, for providing that. I really appreciate you having me. I look forward to connecting again. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, thank you so much. And for everyone who's been uh, listening in on our conversation, we hope you enjoyed it. Bye for now. <laughs>